Hello everyone, my name is Sarah, I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, and in the first week of March, we began this series, a deep dive into Romans 8. It's a verse-by-verse exploration of what it means to have life in the Spirit. And every step of the way, we're discovering that we desperately need the Holy Spirit. Whether we fully understand this third person of the Trinity or not, the truth is that we need Him. So, we need to be students. Understanding that there's still so much to learn and still so much we don't know and don't understand. And I hope you're not discouraged or intimidated by that. Truly, I hope that excites you. Because if we can open these pages and learn, it means that, well, that God continues to reveal himself to us. It means that he desires for us to know him. It means he isn't hiding somewhere out there just watching us from a distance. It means that he is present with us through the Holy Spirit and he's teaching us. So in the first two weeks, we learned that we desperately need the Holy Spirit living in us and through us so we can live free and we need him to achieve God's standard. And last week, Derek's big idea, Life in the Spirit Begins with a Renewed Mind, taught us that we desperately need the Holy Spirit living in and through us so we can think properly. And today, as we open to Romans 8, starting in verse 9 and reading through verse 13, we're going to discover that we desperately need the Holy Spirit living in and through us so we can please God. That's our summary idea. And as I was reading these verses and thinking about the concept of pleasing God, I started to think about grammar. (laughs) I know that sounds crazy. Half of you are rolling your eyes at me, but just stick with me for a second. There are different ways that we can make a statement and different types of sentences, right? So what are they? Well, a question is an interrogative statement. Listen closely. That command is an imperative statement. Grammar is so interesting. That's a declarative statement. And the type of sentence we're gonna explore today is called a conditional statement. So from the time we're kids, we're very aware that life holds so many good and yummy and fun things. And kids catch on pretty quickly that getting all that good stuff generally comes with some strings attached. It's conditional. So if that baby made that funny face, then everyone would giggle and laugh and call them cute. If you behaved in the mall, then you got to ride on that mechanical horse or elephant, whatever it was. If you ate all your dinner, then you got dessert. If you did all your chores, then you got your hour of TV. If you got good grades, then you got some extra cash. If you got a summer job, then you could afford car insurance. If you came home before curfew, then chances are you could go out again another night. And on it would go, accumulating more and more of these conditional rewards and benefits as we age and grow. And so a conditional statement simply tells us that if something is true, then something else is true. In other words, if X, then Y, which means that X is required for Y to exist. Fascinating stuff, right? Well, let's get into Romans 8 and see why this grammar review is necessary. In the first eight verses of the chapter, Paul's speaking in a general way about life in the spirit and life in the flesh. Perhaps it could sound a bit like a lecture concerning those subjects and those kinds of people. In fact, you hear them say this at the end of verse eight. He says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It doesn't come across as super personal, but there comes a dramatic shift in verse nine, as if was if Paul steps around the podium, looks into the eyes of his audience, and changes his tone. So listen to Romans 8, starting in verse 9, reading through 13. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul now addresses his audience directly. All that very important doctrinal work he's been doing in this letter to the church, it's extremely personal. He is writing all of this for the church and for each individual in the church. Paul has people in mind. For him, the gospel's about hearts. For Paul, the weighty matters of sin and forgiveness, justification and sanctification, life and in the flesh versus life in the spirit, these aren't just some heady intellectual facts, but they are words of life and truth for minds and hearts. Much of what Paul wrote down, it's complex. And remember that many of the people in the churches he addressed, they would have been illiterate. And so this was being read to them. And regardless, Paul knew that the words mattered and that they had mattered since the beginning. How did God create the world? He spoke. He breathed out his word and all things were created. God continued to speak through the centuries. He inspired men to speak and write words. Words are one way that God makes himself known to us, right? The apostle John opens the gospel not with the story of baby Jesus, but with the beautiful description of Jesus Christ as the word made flesh. So the word and the words used to express his life and his teachings, they matter. And when we read God's word and when we make it a priority to read and hear the scriptures, it isn't just our own minds working it out. The truth is that the Holy Spirit, it is him who gives us understanding. It's he who reveals to us the character of God. He gives us understanding of who we are and how we're transformed and the ways in which we must act. And so the words of this book, they matter because they're the beginning of our transformation. And Paul just wrote about that in the previous verses, that the Spirit helps our minds to think properly. And he's going to write again in Romans 12, the chapter that shifts the letter from doctrine to action. In Romans 12 too, he says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so again, imagine that Paul has come down from the podium to look into your eyes. And rather than conditional statements aimed at your behavior, like if you obey, then you'll be right with God. Or if you just try harder, then God will love you more. Mm -mm. That's not at all. It's quite the opposite. In fact, notice that all of the conditions in this, they all rely on God. Paul's saying, if God's condemned sin through the death of Christ, and if you are no longer in the flesh, then the spirit is alive in you. Those are true statements. And if the spirit is in you, then you are on God's side. And if the spirit is in you, then you can live like it. Remember our summary statement today. We desperately need the Holy Spirit living in and through us so we can please God. The title for the sermon, this portion of Romans 8, is Acceptance and Obedience. If God accepts you, then you can live obediently. How and why? It's all about the Spirit. Again, if the Spirit is in you, then you're on God's side and you can live like it. Now, before we talk more about that, let's just take a minute to look a little more closely at what Paul means when he writes, the Spirit of God dwells in you in verses 9 and 11. This word dwells is the Greek word oikos. You may have heard that word. If you buy yogurt, you've definitely seen this word. Oikos means to occupy a house, to dwell or live in a space, to be at home somewhere. So Paul's saying that the spirit makes his home in you. When you believe Jesus is your savior and you invite him to forgive you, he sends the Holy Spirit to take up residence in you. 
Remember Pastor Derek taught us in week one that the, the Spirit is our comforter. He's our relational fortress. He's the energizing Spirit of God in us. He is quite literally the breath of our spiritual lives, and we desperately need Him to live the Christian life. So praise God. He dwells in each one of us. We don't have to take turns. We don't have to get put on hold. We don't have to wait in line. He's available at all times to all of us. So the next time you're eating your yogurt, remember the Spirit's right there with you. Now, if this is true, if the Spirit is living in you, then there are some pretty amazing benefits. And that's what Paul's laying out for us here in verses 9 through 13 of Romans 8. So let's look then at three benefits of having the Spirit at home in you. First, if the Spirit of God is in you, then you are not controlled by your flesh. Listen to the first part of verse 9 again. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. This means that sin is no longer the controlling force inside of you. Rather, it's attacking you from the outside. Remember Adam and Eve back in the garden? There was no sin yet within them. Satan had to come and attack them from the outside. Now, since their fall, however, humanity's war with sin has been a war within. But Jesus came and he suffered under the weight of all your sin so that it would no longer have a home in you. The spirit is at home in you and sin has been displaced. It's going to continue to war against you, but not from the inside. The spirit that raised Christ is in you, standing with you, counseling and advising and equipping you to stand firm and withstand temptation. You are no longer controlled by sinful flesh. You're no longer a slave to sin. In verse 13, Paul says, if the spirit you put to death, if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will what? You will live. Now, put to death that's pretty strong language. This is a ruthless, full-hearted resistance to sin. Pastor and author Tim Keller writes, this means a Christian doesn't play games with sin. You don't aim to wean yourself off it or say, I can keep it under control. You get as far away from it as possible. You don't just avoid things you know are sin, you avoid the things that lead to it, even things that are doubtful. This is war. And the war, it's been won. You belong to Christ. You don't belong to sin or the flesh anymore. Verse 12 reminds us that the flesh has no hold on us who are in Christ, who have the spirit living in us. We don't owe a thing to our old selves. Rather, we owe everything to Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. Paul will write to the church in Ephesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. So you are saved and you are free. And thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So the first benefit is that if the spirit is in you, then you are not controlled by your sin. The second benefit is that if the spirit of God is in you, then you have resurrected life. Now, one of the natural consequences of our sin is that our physical bodies are decaying and one day we will all die. The moment Adam and Eve ate that fruit, their bodies began to die and no one has escaped death. Even those whom Jesus raised from the dead, remember his friend Lazarus or the sick daughter of the Jewish leader, Jesus restored their physical bodies to life and yet one day they would die and remain dead. Even Jesus' physical body it really and truly died on that cross. Jesus was buried as every human in history has had to be buried. The difference, of course, is that Jesus is no longer dead. He rose as the fully embodied son of God. And how did he do that? Well, Paul tells us right here in verse 11 that it is the Spirit who raised Christ. The life-giving presence of God brought Christ's physical body from death to life. 
and his power doesn't stop there, right? If the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. How's that for a conditional statement? If the spirit who resurrected Jesus is at home in you, then you have resurrected life. I think that paints a pretty clear picture of a very bright future ahead for all of us. And yet, and yet, we will all still feel the tension. You may physically feel the aches and pains right now of a decaying body. Our future resurrection is guaranteed, our eternal life is secured, and yet, we will watch these bodies age. We're gonna feel these bodies hurt, we're gonna experience sickness, one day we're gonna cease to breathe. Many of the promises of God have this now and not yet quality and tension to them. We are right now set free from sin, but we're not yet made perfect. And we now have eternal life, but we've not yet been given eternal bodies. We're delivered spiritually and we're not yet delivered physically, which is a bit unfortunate for us because our culture is obsessed with health and vitality. One of our society's core values is staying youthful, right? We go to great lengths to resist aging. If you've got the money, you can invest in all kinds of products, procedures, in an attempt to slow down what's inevitable. A quick Google search on how to prevent death <laughs> led to some pretty interesting articles. One example I just had to share with you came from an opinion piece published in the UK in 2019. It said over the past few years, there's been a surge in the amount of money being pumped into research on how to overcome death. Billionaires, scientists, and entrepreneurs have arrived at the revolutionary conclusion that the human body can be dramatically remade into something better, stronger, and far longer lasting. I do believe that we will get to the stage where death will be a curable disease thanks to technological progress. This philosophy often goes under the umbrella term transhumanism, which literally means beyond human. Transhumanism citizen scientists, who often go by the term biohackers, promote genetic editing as a way to achieve this, turning our bodies into alien-like creatures. Others, like billionaire Elon Musk, think we should consider merging our brains with machines and upload our consciousness into the cloud. And some people, like Professor Stephen Westaby, want the human form to remain essentially the same, but restore itself with stem cell tech and the help of bionic organs. Whatever science transhumanists want to use to become a better species, overcoming biological death is the movement's primary goal. Most deaths in the world are caused by aging and disease. Approximately 150,000 people die every day on planet Earth, causing devastating loss to loved ones and communities. I think the first step in getting this future to decrease is for governments around the world to declare aging a disease. Wow. I mean, I have a lot of questions after that. You probably do too. Starting with like, wouldn't this planet run out of room? I don't know. Another amusing example of our obsession with youthfulness and, and avoiding death was an article titled 100 Ways to Avoid Death, or to Avoid Dying, I'm sorry. And this featured a collection of adages from American folklore through the history, okay? So let me just give you a sample of these 100. Rule number one, don't take ashes out of the fireplace or the wood stove between Christmas Day and New Year's Day. Hmm? Rule number nine, keep cats off piano keys obviously. Rule 28, don't walk around in one shoe. Rule number 35, avoid drinking coffee at five o'clock. But I feel like there's a song somewhere about it always being five o'clock somewhere. Rule number 39, be sure that someone else cooks your birthday dinner. Oops, sorry mom. Rule number 50, absolutely no haircuts in March. Uh, mine was actually March 14th. <laughs> Rule number 75, try not to imagine it's Saturday when it's not. Good luck with that. And if you're curious about rule number 100, it's never let a lizard count your teeth. 
I don't know, crazy. Listen, every person who is studying aging or every person who's perpetuated and passed on these endearing little ditties, they all died or they will die one day. It's inescapable. But it doesn't have to be scary. The author of Hebrews encourages us in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 with these words. It says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, picture what the author of Hebrews is saying. You are in a race. And races, well, races have an end. They've got a finish line. And the best way to get to that finish line is to not be weighed down by a heavy load. And so as followers of Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit, not only are we able to throw off the weight of sin, but we can actually look forward with joy to the end of our race, the end of life in this physical body. Jesus endured a brutal death because of the joy that was set before him. And that joy is resurrected life. He first claimed it for himself so that he could give it to us through his spirit. So I say, I say, let's run this race. Let's worry less about getting old and instead look forward with joy to the resurrected life waiting for us. So if the spirit is in you, then you are not controlled by your sin and you have resurrected life. And the third benefit is that if the spirit of God is in you, then you will truly live. Remember what Jesus was teaching about uh, being the gate for the sheep and the good shepherd back in John 10. He noted that the enemy in the sh of the sheep had one thing in mind, death and destruction. But in stark contrast, Jesus says in John 10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so where the enemy wants to come and steal your joy, Jesus wants to increase it. And where the enemy wants to lead you to a pit of despair, Jesus wants to lift you up to rejoicing. And where the enemy wants to bury the knife of shame, Jesus wants to free you to receive his forgiveness. And where the enemy wants to leave you for dead, Jesus wants to breathe life and peace and healing into all your broken places. And how does Jesus accomplish this? How does he give us abundant life? You already know the answer. It's the Spirit. So even now, while we're eagerly waiting for the resurrection of our physical bodies, even now you have spiritual life in abundance. Obeying the law, following your rules, couldn't earn this for you. Your flesh certainly couldn't make this happen. It's only by the Spirit. Only because the Spirit has come in to make his home in you. And the presence of the Spirit in you means that your embrace of his abundant life, that's pleasing to God. As our summary statement reminds us, we desperately need the Holy Spirit living in and through us so we can please God. I want you to listen again to verses 12 and 13 of Romans 8. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So you can choose... You can choose to continue living by the norms of your flesh, giving into temptations and selfish desires, or you can put those norms to death. And the ability to put them to death, remember, it comes from the Spirit. Do you remember what Paul said at the end of chapter 7, right? He said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. One theologian put it this way. He said, by the Spirit enables believers to do the good that the inner human being and the mind of the eye, unaided by the Spirit, could not do. Let's think about this from a different angle. Think about a beautiful pot of flowers like geraniums. 
Now, something I've learned from my green thumb relatives is that many flowers need regular tending. You can't just ignore them. And a key aspect to their care besides water is something called deadheading. You see, when a plant has produced flowers, those flowers, they will, they will fade, and then the plant will focus its energy on making seeds. But if you remove those dead flowers, the plant will remain focused on producing flowers. Now, I am no green thumb, and this isn't a perfect analogy, but the Spirit does something like this to us. The Spirit prunes dead heads, the dead stuff, the sin stuff, the dark stuff, the selfish stuff. He wants to get rid of that junk in our lives. If you don't let him do that work, then you're going to remain trapped in your flesh, and the flesh leads to death. Verse 13 says, remember, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So if you allow the spirit to deadhead the stuff that leads to death, it makes room for him to do something new in you, a new kind of flower, if you will. Paul calls it fruit, and he writes a lot about it in his letter to the Galatians. Let me read that for us, starting in Galatians 16. But I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not satisfy the gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do but if you are led by the spirit you are not under the law now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality impurity sensuality idolatry sorcery enmity strife jealousy fits of anger rivalries dissensions divisions envy drunkenness orgies and things like these I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So if the Spirit is in you, then you will truly live the abundant life, overflowing with this good fruit. So Paul's made this doctrine of the flesh and the spirit very personal. He got eye to eye with his audience. He laid out the benefits of having the spirit make his home in you. If the spirit is in you, then you are not controlled by your sin. You have the resurrected life and you will truly live. If X is true, if that spirit is home in you, then Y is true. All of those benefits are yours. And notice who owns these conditional statements. It is the Spirit. Your access to life is not conditional upon you, praise the Lord. It's Jesus who satisfied God's requirement on your behalf. And so therefore, when you said yes to Jesus, the Spirit now lives on you. But it also means that the opposite is true. Remember that Y is only true if X is true. So if you don't have the Spirit, you do not have God's presence in your life and you cannot please God. In fact, you're still enslaved to your sin and you will not, cannot have eternal life with him. And if you're not sure whether the Spirit has made his home in you, please reach out to one of your pastors at Grace or your life group leader. Ask the question. Seek understanding. The Lord truly wants to lavish you with all the benefits we've talked about today. And for those of you who are in Christ, who know that the Spirit has come to make his oikos, his home with you, well, what's our response to all this? Well, gratitude for starters and worship for sure. But also I think Paul looks at you in the eye and says, if you accept all this to be true, then live like it. That's what Paul's implying here. If you are free from your flesh, then you are free to live a life that's pleasing to God. You're free to run in his presence. You're free to follow him. You're free to obey. You're free to flourish here and now in this life, even as you wait 
for the ultimate freedom at the resurrection. So that's a big idea I want us to remember, that I want you to live like the Spirit has made his home in you. And this fruit that Paul talks about is key. Funny thing about fruit is it's not produced for the plant, right? An apple doesn't eat its own apple. An apple tree doesn't eat its own apples. A tomato plant doesn't chew on its own tomatoes. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, the principal purpose of the fruit is the protection and dissemination of the seed. Hmm, interesting. I'm thinking Paul maybe had a fig tree or a grapevine in mind when he wrote about the fruit of the spirit. When the seeds of the fruit spread, new plants will grow. And when the fruit of the spirit spreads, the seeds of the gospel are planted and new spirit-filled life will grow. I think this is a good next step for us to consider. In light of all we've learned, if we reap the benefits of the spirit making his home in us, then let's live like it. Let's, let's bear his fruit. The fruit of the Spirit's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let's spread the seeds of his gospel wherever we go. So just two simple next steps today. First, share the fruit of the Spirit in you with the people around you. So what would it look like for you to love someone? What does kindness look like in your workplace? How can you demonstrate self-control this week? Remember the Spirit's at home in you, so just ask Him to grow this fruit in your life day by day. And second, let's continue working on, memori- on the memorization challenge. You can find helpful tips when you use that digital study book at whoisgrace.com read. Listen, with the Spirit at home in you and the Word of God stored up in your mind, you have all you need for life. You can run this race, you can face every trial, every temptation, you can endure, and you can have an abundant life now and for eternity. Praise God for that.